All right, greetings everybody and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson. Uh, in case you guys are tuning in for the first time, this show covers all things innovation, ideas, creativity, and uh, today the book does not stop. Um, say hello, Dr. Dave. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks Thanks for doing this. Um, are you sure you know what you're in for? <laughs> as much as I can be. <laughs> um, I guess for starters, uh, I would love to just kind of get it from the horse's mouth in this case as far as um, how you would describe yourself at a dinner party. Like you, you walk in, somebody's like, hey, what, do you, what do you do? Um, what's, what's, the, what's your typical response? Uh, well, I wear a lot of hats, as some people might say. Um, I think, uh, the way that I would describe myself in the simplest terms would be as a psychiatrist, a healer, uh, an inventor, uh, an adventurer. Uh, and as I'm always curious about things in the world and particularly consciousness, and I think this is what really drives me in a lot of my research and my work with my patients. Um, I think a, a slightly more full description would be that I'm a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. Um, I've studied aging and chronic stress for the better part of 15 years. Uh, I conduct clinical trials on um, psychedelic medicines and also non-invasive wearable technology. Um, the technology that I developed at the University of Pittsburgh is known as Apollo. Um, and I'm the chief innovation officer at Apollo Neuroscience. Uh, we developed this technology to try to help people uh, augment their, their abilities, their access to their full potential, help them feel uh, more able to cope with and overcome stress and really just you know facilitate being our best selves as often as possible uh, using the latest in what we now know of neuroscience and psychology research, uh, which we attempt to translate through wearable technology to uh, to folks in the real world who could benefit from it. And I'm also the executive director of the Board of Medicine, which is an organization that helps to, uh, as a nonprofit charity, medical board support uh, educating physicians and scientists um, in practice and in training about how to use a lot of complementary alternative medicines and the evidence for these medicines and natural techniques in the healing process. Uh, so no, no day is the same for you. Okay. <laughs> That's I mean, fair. There's definitely a lot of hats. And you also have the uh, United Inventors, Inventors Association as, as part of your, uh, your mm -hmm. resume. So yeah, so, so lots, of, lots of stuff going on. Tell me a little bit about the adventurer part. That, that kind of stuck out to me as the one of these things don't, don't fit. <laughs> um, well, I think, it, you know, I like to call myself an adventurer as, as sort of a summary of a lot of different things that I'm interested in, which is really culminated in, you know, just my, a sense of curiosity that I feel my parents really did a, an exemplary job of fostering when I was growing up. They, they really, I think of, of everything that my parents did for me, they really helped to let me, help, help me understand that I could really think about anything and that, you know, not really set limits as to what is possible or not. And of course the world does that for us so much anyway. Um, but they did the best they could to try to help keep my imagination broad and, and alive and just give me a constant sense of curiosity. And I think it wouldn't be a surprise to anyone to understand that as a child, I was one of those children who just would follow people, adults around and just ask why all the time, which was probably really annoying, but uh, sometimes annoying traits as children turn out to be decent traits as adults. <laughs> and so, that, uh, so, so I think that, that that sense of curiosity just led me down a, a number of different paths that I think most psychiatrists don't typically go down, you know, some of which being paths toward 
um, enhancing uh, and learning about physical health and sort of this interface between the mind and the body and how physical and mental health are so deeply intertwined, um, not just in humans, but also evolutionarily um, throughout many animal species and and also just starting to understand, you know, altered states of consciousness, right? Which is something that, you know, when you think about the way that we have evolved as a, as a community, spiritually, religiously, um, the kind of beliefs that we hold va uh, as valuable as a society, they're actually very similar across societies. You know, we talk about, we tend to focus a lot on the fine points and the fine differences between things. But when you really look at most religions, they have the fundamental core tenets is mostly the same. Um, and so there's a lot of, um, you know, interesting experiences that we have, whether they're through the, you know, in traditional ingestion of, for example, psilocybin mushrooms in a religious or spiritual context by tribespeople or ayahuasca, or whether it's with MDMA or ketamine-assisted therapy in a clinical setting, people are having radical spiritual experiences, at least that they subjectively consider spiritual, that um, result in, you know, profound transformative um, uh, changes for them in the form of symptom relief from treatment-resistant illnesses, which is really incredible. And I think why this is so exciting for me is because this is the closest thing to a cure that we've ever had in the field of mental illness in the history of psychiatry. That's a big deal. That's huge. Yeah. And so that's so, so my adventures sort of go out into all of those different areas. And I, I like to think of consciousness as this wide open space that we really haven't ventured out into nearly as much as we we could. And, and this is, you know, now that we're hitting this point where technology has gotten so incredible and we're starting to understand how a lot of Eastern medicine practices work, as well as Western, as well as um, plant medicines and all of these things are AI and all the stuff is starting to come together with, you know, wearable technology. It's an incredible opportunity for us to start adventuring out collectively in these directions. When did you know you wanted to turn your curiosity into a psychiatric, you know, neuroscience practice? You know, were you seven years old following your dad around? <laughs> like, I know what I'm going to do. Uh, but when did the bug hit you? And like, how did you know it was real? So I guess the, the earliest it hit me, I was actually pretty young. Um, I, I would say I was probably, you know, three or four, but it wasn't in the way that most people would think. I think for me, what I started to experience at that age um, were dreams that were very intense. Um, and I had dreams that were so vivid and so intense that they would often be, for me, indistinguishable with my reality. So I would be, and they wouldn't necessarily be nightmares. They might be dreams of having a conversation with a friend or a parent or a loved one or something like that. And I would wake up the next day and I'd be going about my life or maybe later that week, I'd be going about my life and I would reference something that I, I knew had happened in an experience with other people around who I knew were there, or at least I swore I, that they were there, and no one knew what I was talking about. This wouldn't happen very often, but it would, you know, it would happen when I was, you know, in, you know, under 10 years old, um, maybe once or twice a month. And I started to think, you know, these experiences that no one else remembers, I felt were real, but no one else remembers them because they, I think they happened in my dreams. And I started to, to remember as they, I was talking about them that I didn't experience it in this, in this, you know, sort of sense of waking reality. And so I started to, of course, ask the question of my parents and other people around me, you know, what are dreams? Like, what are these experiences that we have in our sleep that in some, not always, but sometimes feel so real that you can't tell the difference? You know, is that real? is this real? What, what's going on here, guys? Right, and, right. And, I, and I don't think anybody ever really gave me an adequate answer. 
no one. Oh, well, yeah. Is there an adequate answer? Like, is there, you know, that, cause it, you know, philosophically people say thoughts become things, right? Or you've, we've all heard some version right. of that, right? It starts in your mind and then it becomes a real object. Somebody had to think of a car before there was actually a car. Um, you know, where have you seen that line drawn, especially in your work, you know, between imagination and, and reality? Yeah, I mean, I think we see it all the time and it takes different forms or we see it in different ways and different and everyone has a different or or slightly different kind of description of that experience. And again, I say description because it's not exactly a definition of consciousness. When we try to define something, we're trying to take words and apply them to something in a way that is unchangeable. But really what we're talking about is a description, which in a lot of ways is unique to all of us. Um, and so I think one of the most interesting descriptions um, comes from Carl Jung's work. Carl Jung was one of the founders of psychoanalysis and dream theory. Um, and he, as a, uh, as a, you know, as a psychologist and psychiatrist, he really, you know, thought a lot about the meaning of dreams and sort of this barrier between what, what Freud called the subconscious and the conscious, you know, Jung started to distill down into the sense of awareness so what we're aware of right now versus beneath awareness. So what's beneath our standard level of awareness right now? So when we think about this conversation as an example, we're paying attention to each other's voice, the sound of each other's voice, the intonation, um, the content, obviously, and sort of what we want to get out of this conversation. And then our listeners may be thinking about similar things and what they're going to learn. Um, but there's all these other things happening around us that we're not paying attention to that are still happening. Even in the same room that we're in, there might be things going on outside, there might be things buzzing around us, there might be other screens on or other people around us doing things. And we're not afraid because they're, they're registered with, within our what we call subconscious or beneath awareness as safe. And so we can allow those things to happen around us without feeling alarmed or threatened and still have all of our attention reserved for the thing that we're focusing on right now in this moment. Um, in this case, the podcast, right? But at the same time, there are other situations where um, things in our subconscious can be registered as unsafe because they are un they are become associated over time with th with things that are perceived as threat. And so, when they become associated like that, for example, um, a parent tells us that they love us, but then they hit us, right? or they neglect us and they tell us they love us. So we interpret love as children to be associated with feelings of abandonment or neglect or even pain, right? And that happens a lot of the time, not necessarily at anybody's fault, but just because that's how people were taught to act and sure. that association gets formed in our brains. And so then within our subconscious, having people around who love us may not actually feel as safe as it's supposed to. And so what, what psych psychotherapy does and what psychotherapy has been really honing in on for the last hundred years since all of this was, work was really um, you know, heavily developed by Freud and then expanded on by Jung and all these other people um, has really looked at you know, the idea that when we, go, when we work with somebody in the proper psychotherapy setting, or with, with or without things like psychedelic medicines helping us out or other medicines helping us out, um, 
what we're doing is we're helping expose some of these things that have been buried deep down in the subconscious, these or beneath our awareness, these memories, some of which are good and some of which are bad. And usually there's good ones associated with the bad ones and some bad ones associated with the good ones. And then we pull all of that out in the context of a safe setting to be now within our conscious awareness. And then this by just talking about it for example. And this allows us to start to do work and process that raw material that could have been processed at the time with adequate support, right? But usually wasn't because the support is generally lacking after people experience trauma. And so now we go back in almost as like psychosurgeons, you know, to really look at what happened in this person's experience in time and that led them to where they are right now. And then how do we work through that in a safe experience? Dreams are sort of that massive collection of subconscious material beneath our awareness that Jung believed, interestingly enough, and just tying it back to dreams, Carl Jung believed that that dream state is connected to what many call the collective unconscious. So this is the unconscious beneath awareness material that is around all of us as a humanity all the time, and that that is a collective experience, kind of like a pool of thoughts that we tap into when we sleep. So that's just my personal favorite description of of the way that we do this and sort of adding in some of the um, personal experiences from being a clinician and working with people and how we work with that content. But um, yeah, it is a difficult thing to to grasp because it's not something you can really wrap your hands around. Well, well, speaking of wrapping your hands around it, right, you you turned all this into like a, a fancy wristband. Um, <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about how some of what you just said pours into what Apollo Neuro is as a wearable device, because I think about, you know, the difference obviously with psychotherapy and, you know, psychedelics, um, is it's passive in, to some extent. Uh, yeah. and so, you know, it's, it, maybe that's safer, you know, psychologically in, in a way, but I, I don't want to describe it for you. So please, uh, by all means, tell me a little bit more about the, the device itself. Sure. So, so, uh, so taking a step back, the Apollo wearable was actually developed out of the research that I was just talking about with respect to safety, these sort of remembered safety or fear states, and they actually get stored in the body. And there's some, um, the, and there's some great literature on this. Many of you probably know the body keeps the score by Besser van der Kolt, um, and there's a number of other people who talk about this, Joe Dispenza, um, and many, many others, but it's just, um, you know, this incredible wealth of knowledge that the body stores not only good memories, but also stressful memories that we sometimes refer to as trauma. And so um, I, as a psychiatrist, mostly focus on in my clinical work, uh, PTSD, trauma, uh, substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, um, and also, you know, sort of these new treatments that can be safely used to help with folks who struggle with these, um, with these symptoms. And what we found in my research at the University of Pittsburgh was that there are certain frequencies of sound waves that actually delivered through the skin can activate the touch receptor system in our, in our bodies, just like somebody giving you a hug or, or holding your hand on a bad day, somebody you like course, um, that sends safety signals to the brain very quickly that helps interrupt these negative thought pathway patterns or fear loops that, that exist in our brains from associating experiences that aren't actually threatening to us with threat from the past. And so the way when we, when we figured out mapping out the nervous system through my research at the university and trying to figure out how do we actually tap into this pathway, we know that touch does it. Touch has, has helped us feel safe for millions and millions of years going long, you know, back into monkeys. And it's a hardwired 
nervous system, nerve pathway from the skin to the brain. Is there a way we can tap into this with technology? And so that's where Apollo came in, um, was really trying to figure out how to do that. And ultimately from our research at the university and doing a double-blind randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial, we found that these very specific, very gentle patterns of sound waves that kind of feel like an ocean wave washing over your body uh, in, in terms of the way that they feel. Um, and we figured out how to put those um, patterns into a device that's about the size of an old Apple Watch that you can wear on your wrist or your ankle uh, that delivers these frequencies to the skin. Um, they're barely noticeable in most situations, and um, they help restore a sense of mindful presentness by grounding us back into our bodies in whatever situation we're in. Um, so, you know, like, like many monks will talk about how meditation is about centering the mind back into the body. Um, and that's sort of the, the starting process of being mindful. And many of us who practice mindfulness use those body centering techniques to start the process. That's exactly what breath work does. Um, all of these techniques involving how to, you know, achieve a state of mindful presentness all involve getting centered back into the body. Because when we start to feel something in our bodies, like the feeling of air coming into our nose through breath, or like somebody touching us in a gentle way, or the feeling of Apollo vibrating gently on the body, our subconscious brain, as we were talking about earlier, the fear center of our brain, which is rests in our beneath awareness brain, um, recognizes that if we have the time to pay attention to this gentle, soothing feeling or the feeling of air coming into our nose and lungs, that we can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment. We can't possibly be in an immediate survival threat in this moment if we have time to pay attention to this gentle, soothing feeling. And so that is a rapid loop that helps restore safety in the body very quickly. And we figured out that when we could tap into this loop, which is hardwired in the brain, that we could deliver that effect relatively quickly with the technology. And that the technology also trains the body over time to reestablish these states. And so it helps people um, who are struggling with some of these conditions feel a lot better relatively quickly and be able to be more functional in their lives, which is very exciting. Yeah. So I, look, I, you know, it's, it's interesting because uh, I, I sometimes visit a phrase uh, and I don't know if it makes sense, but I talk about mass customization, right? Um, because we're all, as, all the little uh, nuances that go and, and make up who we are psychologically, emotionally, and, you know, all the variables within that are different for each person, right? Um, while there's some commonalities, but to have like therapy is going to be very individualistic, right? Um, but when you have a device that sort of is a a one size fits all, um, what are how do you differentiate between what you might need from a device like that versus what I might need, and actually how the device functions to uh, to work in that capacity? Sure. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And with you know with therapy and with these kind of medical techniques, we always do our best as much as we can to personalize treatment. Um, and personalize the recommendations to each individual. Um, but that was another challenge that we really were trying to overcome, which is what are the patterns that we all have between all of us that are the most common basic patterns of things that we want to do in our lives? So we ended up making a number of prototypes and we sent them out to a couple thousand people and then did some clinical trials and we got feedback from these people. And ultimately what we found after looking at the data from device usage and also feedback was that people use these use Apollo at certain times for specific things. And we broke these down into seven different activities um, that in the new commercially available app that's available right now, you can see um, these seven goals. And so the seven goal state modes are um, energy and wake up, uh, which is kind of like caffeine, 
Um, mm-hmm. It's just like a boost of energy relatively quickly. Social and open, which help, you know, just helps you kind of like ease into social situations or it also helps with creative work energy. So it's just like a calm, clear focused, more on the creative focus side, um, but great for socializing. Clear and focus, which is more like in, it just for intense, dedicated work or intense, long, long-term focus. Great for public speaking as well. Um, and then rebuild and recover, which is for post-workout or in, in between sets of a workout. It really, um, we've shown in a pilot trial at the University of Minnesota, helps to restore the body much more quickly after a workout or in between sets and actually results in improved peak performance athletically afterwards, which is really interesting. Um, so basically, you know, as we, one might expect, the body recovers more and between sets, you're going to be able to hit peak performance more in each set. Um, and so that was a very exciting trial that has now had consistent results in the NCAA athletes at the University of Pittsburgh uh, study, which just wrapped up. And then we have the cal- more calming settings, which are meditation and mindfulness, which is kind of what we call like calm flow. So it's more of like a gentle, clear, uh, calm mm-hmm. setting that um, just helps people feel relaxed and it's great for helping ease into a meditative state. Uh, many people also use it for uh, chronic inflammatory pain or pain, things like that that are kind of bothering them um, and uh, have great results with that. And our folks who in our clinical trials who have PTSD love that meditation and mindfulness mode, I think more than any other. Um, And then relax and unwind is like the pre-bedtime one. It's kind of like what some people equate to like having a glass of whiskey. It's It's not like that because you can just turn it on and off as you wish, but it's a very deep central body relaxation that's very, very soothing um, and calming. That's one of my personal favorites. And then the one most calming is the sleep and renew, which most people put on before they go to bed. So between those seven settings, you can basically help nudge yourself into whichever goal you want for any anything during the day that normally you might have a hard time switching into that state. Um, most importantly for most people, they use it to wake up and fall asleep when they want to wake up and want to fall asleep. And that's one of the things that I think we struggle with the most. And it's not, it's not something you leave on all day, right? Because, you know, when I, it's funny because when I, when I started watching, I was like, oh, is this going to just be vibrating like my, you know, from, from a 24-hour cycle or an 8-hour cycle? Um, or is it, you know, is, is, am I choosing these settings or is there one ubiquitous setting that could, could work yeah. with it as well? So that's, that's a great question. So I think right now in the current form, um, it is uh, used as needed. So you can activate it. Um, you choose the setting on the phone and then it saves the setting to the wearable. And then the wearable can be used without the phone around by activating it with the buttons on the device itself. So um, typically the way people, each, each uh, mode is time limited to somewhere between five minutes and two hours, depending on what setting you're on and what your goal is. And so you set it on the phone to how long you want it to last and which setting you want. And then you can adjust the intensity of the vibration and turn the vibration on or off and restart it on the device itself. So as an example, the way I use it during the day is, and most members of our team actually use it during the day, is we'll set it in the morning to clear and focus. And then we'll leave it on clear and focus all day because that's typically the setting we use all day to work. Um, So... It'll be set for clear and focus for a half hour. It'll run its half an hour course. And then at a, you know, start the starting at nine o'clock. Then at, at 11 o'clock, I'll be like, oh, I'm feeling a little sluggish. I could get a cup of coffee, but instead I'll just take a, I'll just do a boost of the Apollo. So I just click the buttons on the Apollo, turn it back on for another half hour. And then I get to lunch, eat lunch, turn it back on again for another boost after lunch, go back to work, 
turn it back on for another boost when I have to do some late afternoon phone calls. And then I go home. And then when I get home, I'll put it on uh, you know, meditation and mindfulness or relax and unwind for half an hour right. to kind of ease me back into the you know, calm, no work zone home situation. And then the sleep when I go to sleep for an hour. Um, but it's not on all day. I, you, most people do wear the device all day, that, that being said, so that they can have access to it and turn it on whenever they need a boost without having to put it on. But, and it is comfortable to wear all day um, and water resistant. Um, so it is, and uh, it is something that has become an, an incredible tool for us and many other high-performing folks who need an extra boost with uh, anything from you know, cognitive performance, physical performance is just being able to get a little more done each day. So, for, so like from an entrepreneurial standpoint, right? Like, you know, I, I did read that this was a product that was five years in development, which for some entrepreneurial journeys that might feel like a long time, you know, for others, it might be like, oh, cool. Like that's right on the mark. Um, what did you set out to do? And what did you learn along those five years? And that could be on the business side of things and like figuring out, figuring out how to market a product versus, you know, what goes into building it and the clinical trials and all those things. But, you know, what, what, what changed most for you during that five-year period? That's a great question. Um, well, I mean, just to walk through it, I think, you know, five years ago, we we're in 2015. So maybe it's been six years. I started doing the research actually on this topic in 2014. So in 2014, we we're really starting to kick off the emotional landscape research at the university with my colleague, Dr. Greg Siegel. And we're really looking at, you know, how to sort of activate this part of the nervous system that helps people calm down and feel more mindfully present in stressful situations. Um, how to activate a meditative state for people without them you know, really having to do that much. Um, and that research probably in the lab alone was you know, the core focus at the beginning of this. And that was really three years from 2014 to 2017, before we had completed our first double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial, um, including the fundraising for that trial, which, which uh, was supported by my wife, who was a volunteer, who's now the CEO of Apollo Neuroscience. And she um, has the business experience between the two of us and really helped to facilitate the transition of this from just an idea in 2014 at the university to something that actually was implementable as a as a, you know, a product in the real world just four years later in, uh, or I should say six years later in, in 2020 when the product was shipped in January. So, um, so the research period, I think, was something that we did that a lot of other people don't take the time to do necessarily to really prove out, is this something worth our time? Because Catherine and I both have other things we could be doing in our lives. You know, I could be making... And we could probably be making more money doing those other things too, <laughs> being entrepreneurs and, and work not as hard as working now. So, you know, we really had to make a very hard decision of, is this the thing that we're going to invest the next several years of our lives in? And to do that and to make that decision without hesitation, we had to do the diligence of running the trial that would convince us and our colleagues that this was worth our time. So that running that double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical crossover trial at the University of Pittsburgh in healthy people was the was really the the aha moment and the transition point for us that helped us to really take this on with full force. Um, up until that point, I would say that my most of what I was learning was sort of like getting a crash course MBA and like 
how to make a pitch deck and how to create like a, uh, a, a business canvas outline and, you know, sort of all of these business model canvas, all these different things for like how to, how to really start the innovation process um, from the very beginning. And that was extraordinarily helpful because that's not anything that doctors learn in school. Um, so that was, that was a really tremendous, um, beginning for me. Um, and then after that, you know, I think we started to really take on the commercialization aspect, which was really, you know, the clinical trial stuff was really spearheaded by me. Um, and now we're still, I'm still running several clinical trials, but now that we have the evidence from, from that 2017, uh, study that then most of the work sort of transitioned to Catherine where she had to spearhead fundraising, fundraising enough money to raise a staff, right? And, and to, to bring on a staff, including me, um, and to bring on, you know, now we have 10 staff that have helped bring this product, which is a hardware and a software product. So it's hard enough to make one or the other, um, but to make a hardware and a software product that's a consumer product to market within starting the commercialization process in 2017, or in 2017 2018, going through to 2020, that's two and a half years of commercialization for a product that is now, you know, built to FDA spec and on the market and actually providing relief for people. I mean, that is an incredibly short time for product yeah. development. So, and, 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 and the, the hardest part for us <laughs> in that was really focus, focusing on how to figure out, you know, when you have a new technology, how do you talk about it? You know, how do you describe this to people in a way that they can understand and see the future and have it mean something to them? I think that is a, a constant challenge that, you know, now we've overcome to a large extent, but in the beginning, man, that was really Oh, yeah. Tricky. I mean, I would imagine, it's, I mean, look, it, it, uh, your, your wife's your boss. That's a, you know, that's a, <laughs> that's a good one. Um, <laughs> but it, I think building a culture inside of a company and taking your curiosity and continuing to evolve it, even with something like a device, is that's an important practice to develop internally. You know, we can always set sales goals and make sure the science is correct. But the culture of exploration and curiosity and growth is something to like sort of harness and foster and make sure it's implemented in every person throughout your organization. Um, do you have you reached a point where you need that? Has that been part of your roadmap at, at, up to now? Or is that something you're working on? Like, where are you in that part of it? Like the culture of innovation inside an already innovative you know, uh, organization? Yeah, that's a. I mean, I really appreciate you for asking that. I, I think we really, you know, Kath and I really sought to foster that from the beginning. Um, and I think that it's always a challenge because you have to balance, you know, actually generating the revenue to support yourself with sure. innovation. Um, but, you know, having the innovative culture, as you said, is really critical and so that you can always focus on improving. And I think, and improving towards, you know, the goal of just getting better. Right. Same thing with our personal goals. And and I think that, you know, one of the ways that that we do that, that, you know, to take what you were saying even a step further is is like radical, non-judgmental exploration. Right. It's not just mm -hmm. exploration, it's allowing people a creative environment where free thought is okay and you're not gonna get punished for bringing up something that other people don't necessarily agree with. You know, it's about creating that radical that environment and, and community for radical exploration. And I think, I think we kind of, I think we kind of foster that because, you know, I'm the first to admit, you know, uh, that I, you know, put out ideas that are sometimes 
not necessarily ideas that are well thought through, but I put them out there because I want to see what other people think. And maybe it's sometimes it's worth exploring further and it turns into uh, a great thing. And sometimes it, it, you know, I get shut down immediately, but I don't take it personally. It's just that, you know, that, but, but pushing those ideas out there and constantly churning on that stuff really helps to create that environment and foster it from the get-go, which has solved a lot of problems for us. Yeah. That, no, it, and it, I think it's, it's super important. Um, you know, we started off the conversation talking a little bit about collective consciousness, and I, I'd be remiss if we didn't have uh, a conversation about the state of the world today. You know, we're in the midst of a, a global pandemic, as well as, a, you know, an uprising and, a, and the Black Lives Matters issue. And actually on you guys' Instagram account, um, uh, you talked about Auburn University study reported a link between systemic racism and damage at the cellular level. And so when you start to think about sort of emotional wellness and it's, I guess, societal effects, if, if I'm phrasing it correctly, um, not that Apollo serves this as a device, but like, where are your thoughts on sort of mindsets and emotional states and psychology around the, the coupling of these two huge issues? And that might be a huge question, but um, <laughs> it, it, it seems like you're the best person to ask at this, <laughs> at this point in time. I mean, it's a huge question, but it's also a hugely important question right now, right? I mean, this is, I think, a question on a lot of our minds. Um, and I, I won't say that I, I have the answer, but I can at least offer some explanation that might help people to understand sort of where a lot of this is coming from. And it's not, and I think there is, you know, from our understanding of, of neuroscience, there is no doubt now, at least in my mind, and I think many of us on the for, on the forefront of, of trauma and the way that trauma or, you know, what we call traumatology, the study of trauma, um, and in all of its forms impacts humanity. Um, and we now know at least there is a substantial amount of evidence to support that when we are traumatized, that if we do not, that that causes changes to the expression of our genes in our bodies. And it's not necessarily, and those genes could be like cortisol genes, for instance, or, or genes involved in metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, or it could be genes involved in anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Um, but the point is that it changes the expression of genes that are important for our healthy function. If that trauma is not dealt with, um, if it's not worked through, processed, as we started to talk about earlier, then we can actually pass those changes on to our offspring. And it's not known exactly how this happens yet, but it is known that for generations, people who have been traumatized, their children and their grandchildren, in some cases, their great-grandchildren have an increased, have been observed to have an increased risk of disorders like PTSD and metabolic disorder and some of these other things, even though the children and the grandchildren were far removed from the original trauma and raised in a safe environment. Um, and so that is really important to understand because now this has been replicated in mice and it's been shown that mice when replicated or sorry mice when traumatized from a young age can take up to four generations to breed out the wow. genetic that the genetic expression changes which we call epigenetic on the genes that happen as a result of trauma from safe living so that being said you know that's sort of where the research is right now which is might sound scary to start, but there is hope in this research. And the hope is, and the real message we should be taking from this is, that if trauma, which in really, if we break it down what that word means, it means one or many 
negative, intense, meaningful experiences, right? Mm. And then we think about how these one or many intense, negative, meaningful experience cause our DNA expression patterns to change in a way that is not desirable, right? And so if that's the case, then it is very likely, and there is a, a decent and growing body of evidence to support this, that positive, one or many positive, meaningful, intense experiences can potentially reverse those changes to our DNA expression in a favorable way that is desirable. And those could be through, you know, any number of different techniques from psychedelic medicine to psychotherapy to healthy practices like exercise and meditation and breathing. But I think that over time, we're now starting to understand that this, this, you know, this stuff does get encoded deeper down than we thought, and it does last longer than we thought. And so it is even more important that we deal with it and that we deal with it in an expedient and respectful way. Um, and that requires acceptance and acknowledgement of you know, wrongs that have been done and also an understanding of how we move forward. And I think there is no other way to move forward with this in a constructive way other than from the foundation of we are all more similar than we are different, right? Yeah. And, and I think that we are all human first is really the message that needs to be sent out into the world, particularly at a time like this from our leadership, that is going to be the message that shifts the dynamic of our experience. Because what happens when we get into this sort of high fear state, this alert alarm state, this constantly stressed state, is our fear center in our brain gets overactive, which means that we start to look for differences before we see similarities. And so when we look for differences first, our brain starts to identify differences as threatening or potentially threatening, which then sparks that fear response in our brains biologically off more and starts to rekindle or strengthen these fear loops that associate other as threatening rather than other as human and safe because they're human first, yeah. right? So all of that is practice though. And, and this is what's the critical point of all this. It's all practice. Uh, Eric Kandel won the Nobel Prize in 2000 for showing that this is all practice. If we practice seeing each other as human first, more similar than different, and look for the similarities before we look for the differences, then it reframes our differences not as something to be afraid of, but as something to admire, right? Something to value. Once we see us all as human first, we see our differences as growing the diversity and the richness of our culture. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I lead a lot of like brainstorms and workshops and things like that. And one of the things I'd like to do as a, as a repeated icebreaker is I'll have everybody go around the room and say, you know, what their first concert was and what their favorite concert was. And it's amazing how you, like, we're all celebrating our love for music and entertainment, but it's also like, oh, what was that? Like the, 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 the sort of, um, creating some glue between the group, whether I like Dave Matthews or I like Jay-Z, you know, is almost doesn't, doesn't matter. It's about the fact that we've all had some form of visceral, like goosebump experience in and around music. And they're all very different, but also very similar. And that, you know, and that could work in a room. For, I've done it in like varying age groups and ethnic groups and, and all sorts of things, but finding that, that commonality. And the reason I asked that question too, is because I feel like, you know, that the types of trauma that we're examining right now, um, or we're in the midst of, 
Um, also kind of like, I, f- I feel like it diminishes an enthusiasm that goes in towards your creativity, your innovation potential. So, you know, if you walk into a room and you're hung up about a dozen other things and here you are, you, you need to invent the next campaign for <laughs> Coca-Cola, right? Like it, it, you're not as free as you could be. And so I'm always looking at like the effects of whatever emotional state you are in, um, as it pertains to what you are able to create and how freely you're able to create. And that's, I don't know, I don't have an answer or a question there, but it's just something that you, you, you drummed up in me with your, with your response. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a great way to put it. And I think, you know, sometimes I describe to my patients as, you know, that we're some, we often find ourselves trapped in a fear box, right? So the, when we're, when our bodies perceive threat or perceive us to be afraid, we automatically divert all necessary resources away from anything we don't need in that moment for survival. So that means that creativity suffers, digestion suffers, sleep and recovery and rest suffer, energy conservation goes up, but energy expenditure um, goes in and metabolism goes down, right? So we end up storing fat in ways that are not necessarily desirable, storing calories in ways that are not necessarily desirable as fat. Um, we, and we, and then we, our reproduction gets diverted away, right? What is the most common reason for example, sexual dysfunction in Americans? It's anxiety, right? That is something that is manageable by helping teach people how to rebalance the nervous system on their own and help reset these fear loops. Because if we can learn to control our, we only have so much attention to a lot to any task we're given, right? We only have so much. So if half of that attention is spent paying attention to things like the news, right, or what's going on in the world, and we can't disconnect from that when we're trying to be intimate with our partner, then more than half of our bodily resources are going to be diverted to our stress response system when we're trying to have a relaxing moment with somebody we love. That is not a recipe for success. (laughs) So all of these things can can be worked with and tuned as long as we can understand that we have the ability to do that. That's brilliant. Um, the show is called Innovation Crush, and as as a curious adventurer, uh, I'm curious as to what you've seen out in the world that you have an innovation crush on. Um, it could be your own device, it could be a meal you had recently, an art experience, or anything. What what have you seen out in the world that's given you goosebumps lately? Hmm. I like that question very much um, because there's so much great stuff going on out there. I mean, I, you know, we went to CES this year um, and I'm going to be, I'm terrible with names. So I really apologize to all the folks or companies who I may um, mess up their (laughs) names or forget Uh them. But I think there were some incredible innovations in sustainable farming Mm, that I was really impressed by. Um, Really seeing the focus on helping people, helping people and communities grow their own food in a more sustainable way that's renewable um, and regenerative is just you know, really heartwarming. Um, and I think that that's really going to make a big difference in the way that, you know, we know agriculture just being such a big burden that we have to deal with, particularly, um, you know, on places I, I'm in California right now and we see the impact of agriculture on the central Valley, you know, there's, you know, central Valley grows a lot of food that's shipped all over the, all over the country. Um, but that the environment of the central Valley cannot support that, um, level of agricultural demand. So all, you know, having people be able to provide more for themselves locally is a particularly exciting um, opportunity that I think will definitely transform things over 
the next several years, um, hopefully sooner. Um, one of the other things that I really am excited about is sort of where things are going with with psychedelic medicines. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, this is a movement that's been going on, and I and I say psychedelic medicines to include plant medicines like cannabis um, and CBD, hemp derived uh, cannabis uh, products. You know, I think that we have just begun to scratch the surface of these medicines. And one of the things that I think is coming to the surface is that when we use these kinds of medicines properly, they're exquisitely safe, exquisitely safe, uh, particularly cannabinoids. And in, in some cases, they're a lot safer than prescription medicines that we are taught to prescribe um, in their place. And so seeing how plant medicine and cannabinoid products, as well as psychedelic medicines are going to shift the medical landscape and the way that we work with patients, the way that we collect data from people, um, you know, how AI is going to shift medicine, um, the way we collect data from patients. Because right now, I don't know if most people probably know that almost no data that you create at home or on your phone goes into your medical record. But in the future, this may change. So there's a lot of interesting opportunities for to see how care is going to evolve because Obviously, you know, if you haven't been paying attention to what's been going on with our healthcare system lately, it's uh, it's not looking so hot. It's not going so hot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, trust me. There's a whole other line of conversation I would love to have with you about the whole like microdosing and what's the proper cocktail for any individual who wants to, you know, improve themselves. I would love to do this again. Um, as far as like being a little bit more prescriptive or like knowing what's right for me, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, however, um, I, I would like to ask you one final question, uh, more, more of a task. You ready? You ready for a task? Yeah. All right. Complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is. Empowering people to free their minds. Ooh. Free your mind, and the rest will follow. You should get. You should do a deal with uh, Invoke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what and what? You know, what is it? Is your goal like? You know, I've heard a lot of founders and entrepreneurs say we want to heal the world through X, Y, and Z. Right? Um, is like, what is your ultimate vision of possibility with uh, Apollo Neuroscience, whether it's the, the device or the entire like your life's work at this point? In time? I I think our our chief, our chief goal and mission with all of this is, you know, I think originally we started out talking about democratizing neuroscience to the general public. So taking discoveries out of the lab and bringing them to the individual. But I think um, that this really goes a lot further than that, which combines the philosophy of the way we practice medicine with in, in the Eastern and Western technique, um, also with combining um with what we wanted to really help people with when we developed the Apollo technology. Uh, and I think that that really comes down to teaching people or empowering people how to heal themselves. Um, you know, this technology and, and the knowledge we have to offer is really a reminder of our own innate ability to heal and emotionally, mentally, and in some cases, physically, and the things that we can do for ourselves to pretty radically improve our lives by making somewhat small changes on a reasonably regular basis. You know, and I think lots of people think that self-improvement, growth, healing, all of these things require radical change all at once that requires other people to help out lots of, you know, but that's, that's not exactly the case. You know, some cases that that is the case, but there are a lot of other cases, probably the majority where 
you know, we actually possess most of the of the control of the situation to really help ourselves grow and learn. And, and so, you know, our mission is doing whatever we can to empower people to remember that we, that they have that ability, that we all have that ability to grow and to heal and then in turn to heal each other. So well stated. So well stated. Um, I guess as we wind down, what's the, um, where can people go to find out more about you, the products, you know, your, your research, all that good stuff. Sure. Um, so you can find me at Dave Rabin on Twitter, uh, directly or at David Rabin or Dr. David Rabin at, on Instagram. And then you can also find, uh, the Apollo technology, uh, which is, uh, at apolloneuro.com. That's A P O L L O N E U R O.com or Apollo neuroscience.com will also work. Um, and, uh, you can find out about my work at the board of medicine at boardofmedicine.org. Um, and I do clinical work as well and still see patients and you can find out about uh, my work with my patients and uh, the clinical work that I'm doing right now at drdave.io. Man, you're not busy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Everybody else just does one URL, Dave. Um, (laughs) No, (laughs) no. Thank thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. Um, and, and thanks for, you know, all your, your work and your thoughtfulness into, into your everyday, uh, existence. So appreciate it. Well, thank uh, you, Chris. I really yeah. appreciate you having me. And, and this was, uh, was great to chat. Everyone. This has been another installment of innovation crush, and we will talk to you next time.